This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 8th of November 2016. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Jon, and as always, here's my co-host Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello, Jon. How are you? I am good. Coming to you from this uh, strange basement in a hotel somewhere. Did your wife kick you out again? No, no. Just traveling, <laughs> meetings, you know the thing. Yeah, we shouldn't go too personal here because we actually have a guest on the show today. We have Eric Stolpers from Data Mayor. Hi, Eric. Good morning, afternoon. Yeah, that's the fun thing about podcasts. You have no idea when people <laughs> listen to this. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, <laughs> what should I say? <laughs> Hello. That's a good one, always. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Um, yeah, sure. Um, my name is Eric. I work uh, as a pre-sales consultant at uh, Datamir, a very nice analytic uh, company. We make a great tool called Datamir. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you uh, listeners might guess, the uh, main topic of the show is going to be about the Datamare product, about uh, data visualization and exploration. It's a subject we haven't really talked that much about, if I'm not mistaken, Dave. No, that's right. Yeah. So when I met Eric a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was, when he did a little demo for us, I thought, oh, that would be a good thing for the show. So I invited him and he graciously agreed to come on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having us, or me. Uh, thank you for being here. But that's for the second part. So as usual, the first part of the show is about things we picked up on the internet. And since Dave was graciously stealing one of my articles I found, he's going first. <laughs> things we pick up on the internet. So that's not, we're not talking about viruses, right? Uh, depends, depends. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> oh dear. So first article, which I did indeed apparently steal from Jan, but what he actually means is... Uh, I said it first, and then he said later. <laughs> that was my, one of mine. So anyway, um, as always, we pick a, a series of things that interest us on the internet um, that are clean and vaguely about Hadoop, and we talk about them. And my first one is machine learning versus AI. What's the difference? Um, so it, it's, it's quite a nice um, kind of introductory article, I guess, just talking about uh, what the difference is between um, AI and machine learning, and you know also what the intersection is between them. Uh, it's uh, it's an article from Wired, um, and it goes through just some of the basic concepts. And there's a couple of nice sort of pieces that I, I quite like about this. There's a really nice um, explanation, which is something like uh, so AI is basically intelligence, how we make machines intelligent, whereas machine learning is the implementation of the compute methods to support it. So AI is the science and machine learning and uh, sorry, AI is the science and machine learning is the algorithms that makes machines smarter. And it goes on and lists a few examples of what's AI and what's machine learning and how these things work together. Um, some examples of stuff uh, Actually, I'm just noticing now done by Microsoft, which is uh, um, sort of finding out the uh, um, emotions of people um, in pictures. And it, it's kind of interesting, the uh, the emotions that they're capturing, they're, they're actually looking at a variety of eight different emotions. So there's anger, contempt, disgust, fear, happiness, neutral, sadness, and surprise. 
And uh, in, in this particular picture, of course, everybody's happy and smiley and happiness value is set to one and all the other values are set to naught. What really interests me is is what a picture would look like if all of those were all reaching one. Um, I'm not quite sure what that face would look like, uh, but I'd be quite interested to see that. <laughs> That's not actually how it works. but uh... <laughs> <laughs> No, I want to reverse engineer it though. I want to see what someone that is completely happy, disgusted, and fearful all at the same time. Show me that face. Well, actually, you can see uh, the approximation of that, because uh, it was not the last insight, but the one from last year, I think, when this was actually uh, introduced. And the guy on stage wanted to sh- show you live how the thing could e- was able to read his face, and he mm-hmm. did get in some contortions that labeled him very strangely. But uh, <laughs> I'll leave it up to you to figure to find that little piece of video. <laughs> yeah, 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 I will. I'll go and dig it out. So yeah, that's my first one. Yeah, and actually I found that article too. And the reason why I picked it was because I actually had a customer of mine ask me to come over and talk to them about AI when it actually meant machine learning. So yeah. the question is definitely very alive. And and if you look at the article, even the way they, they try to explain the difference, and I'm not entirely convinced that they're succeeding because they're sometimes just saying the same thing again with different words <laughs> yeah but but isn't that isn't that that that's that's their process of explaining isn't it? repeat it enough times until uh, until it sinks in and well of course yeah. that's what it is because they've told me it like the same 10 times now yeah but they were saying things like uh, uh, the difference between black and white is that black isn't white and white isn't black yeah <laughs> that was a bit the feeling i got and yeah, and it's it's annoying because if you look on uh, YouTube, I forget the name, but there's this guru on AI has been there working on this for ages, for there for decades, and he actually said that uh, sorry, listeners, uh, Hadoop and big data are killing AI. <laughs> and his theory is that at the moment, machine learning and big data are solving these kind of AI-ish problems by just throwing more data at it. We're no longer making neural networks which are smarter or whatever. We just throw more data at it and that solves it. And that has totally eroded the AI environment, uh, ecosystem, if you like, uh, lack of a better word. So he was totally not happy with it. (laughs) But, I mean, it's it's the simplest possible solution, isn't it? It, it's, It's far easier to throw more data at a problem. I mean, generally speaking, obviously there are exceptions to all of these kind of broad generalizations, but typically it's easier to throw more data in it at a problem than it is to refine the science behind investigating what the actual answer is. If you can just throw more data at it and get the right result, that's going to be, generally speaking, cheaper and easier to do. I think that's something I want to talk Eric, what's your view on this? Because my fear is that throwing more data can also muddy the waters a bit. Um, but throwing more data can get you much more uh, details and can get you much more fine results. If you, if you, for example, if you just look at uh, not if you throw more data in for for more historical data, so mm-hmm. you can then you can get much uh, more detailed result out of it. So I don't think it's that bad. Uh, yeah, but there's a difference, isn't there, between having more historical insights or having more of the same data, only more history, and adding every single table and data set you can find and putting into a belting pot. True, true. That, 
yeah, that that you should never do because uh, then you will just get like, like uh, yeah, a very very. Uh, you don't get a data lake; you get a data swamp, so to say. <laughs> and yeah. that's not what you want. You you need to combine, of course, all data that that goes together. And if it's surrounding somewhere that it might have influence, if you do uh, ten million other things, then it's not relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a whole correlation causation yeah. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. See, Dave, Eric says I'm right, so he's the expert. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure that's what he said, but okay, we'll let that one slide. So It depends who pays more more to me that, that I support, of course. Uh, well, in I'm, that case, that's definitely Jon. He's, he's paid by Microsoft, you know, enough said. <laughs> okay. You're paid by Hortonworks, the most biggest startup, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the most biggest startup, whatever. I'll take yeah. that. <laughs> I was going somewhere there, but it got away from me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, anyway. let's move on. Next article. Yeah, that's one for me then. And the first one is um, I've been accused by my colleagues, family, wife, and everybody else of being pretty sarcastic from time to time. And I always say that's not true. And I think I finally can prove this because I found an uh, article online in the technologyreview.com from MIT, apparently. It's uh, can't see the writer here at the moment, but we'll put it in the show notes. And the title is How Vector Space Mathematics Helps Machines Spot Sarcasm. So finally, I can put my, whatever I'm saying to a machine and have them prove that I'm not sarcastic. Yeah, good luck with that. I think your machine would continuously just be flashing the sarcasm light the whole time. <laughs> That's a simple inversion then, right? <laughs> Anyway, it's a nice article. It's from October 13th. It's pretty recent. And it actually explains in detail how they went at it. So it's not just a fluff piece about uh, machine learning, blah, blah, blah. There's actually a link in that article to the um, paper, the research paper that the MIT guys wrote. And they explain how they try to find sarcasm by looking at phrases and detecting that words in the phrase have no correlation with each other. Okay. Sounds weird. I agree. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the, the the sort of the one that it talks about right at the very beginning is the um, the 1970s. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, which which is which is one of the sort of the key key phrases of of or key elements of sarcasm. Is what so I'd never woman heard man <laughs> woman man fish and bicycle. Actually, it was uh, popularized more recently in a Guinness advert. Um, uh, see, I don't drink. That's a, it. Which then had a fish riding a bicycle as part of the Guinness advert. Anyway, <laughs> um, but there's there's um, there's another example uh, later on that's uh, great relationship advice from one of the America's most wanted. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I can I I get that. I get the sort of the correlation. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. No, but but question: How would they do it when sarcasm isn't also? A lot of time, a reply on something somebody has said. Do they take that into consideration as well? Uh, no. You can say something completely that makes completely sense with words, but if you look at it on a on a on what you reply to, it it can be very yeah. The context can be very sarcastic. No, they're not looking at conversations or dialogue. It's just single phrase and see if that phrase is a sarcastic phrase. Okay. Now, typically. The thing is, you're talking about this me replying with "Yeah, really," something like that. No, you can also have. I'm trying to find a, 
uh, remark. <laughs> yeah, be sarcastic on the show. Come on. <laughs> yeah, be, be, be sarcastic on the spot. Uh, but but yeah, you can have a, a reply to somebody somebody on a very sarcastic way. Now, uh, I could ask you: Are you happy to be on the podcast, Eric? Yes, of course I am. Exactly. <laughs> but see, then you should have the two phrases into one. Yeah, that wouldn't work. I think what they're doing. They're really looking at one phrase and then for the a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle by detecting that woman man that's yeah that can be in context but fish and bicycle that doesn't really contain so they decide that's sarcasm it's a bit more okay. elaborate than that of course but yeah it's a nice thing and this that was the first reason I took the article because it's a nice read on a yeah on the machine learning solution how you can go about things in a different way but also the fact that do we really need machine learning to spot sarcasm <laughs> <laughs> If you're Sheldon Cooper, you need. <laughs> maybe, maybe he will implement it in the next Big Bang Theory. It's entirely yeah. possible. It'll be on his uh, his Apple Watch or something similar. An Apple Watch? Nah. What's wrong with that? Hey, if you look at the news today, Microsoft's all hot and Apple's not hot anymore. So the the, the internet <laughs> is right, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. You've heard it here first. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was a nice article. It's not too long, but the uh, actual the link to the MIT um, reference uh, research paper is a pretty nice read. If you're pretty deep into machine learning, you want to have a nice something else to look at. It's a nice read. All right, so back to you. Moving on then. So my next article is um, a machine learning tool for cleaning dirty data. Um, you see, so you can is, find that, you see, you can find viruses on the internet. You need to clean dirty data. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's, it doesn't do anything with underwear, only data. Um, <laughs> so it's it's actually uh, it's a project called Active Clean. Well, I say a project. It's a bunch of open source code called Open Clean. Um, and it uses um, a bunch of different machine learning algorithms to understand what, you know, what, what is... Um, what it needs to do to clean data, adapt data, um, generally try and fill in bits that are missing. Um, it is written in Python, so expect it not to scale. Um, ah. But it is, I know, I know. But it is, uh, it is up and available on GitHub, and uh, obviously we'll put a link in the show notes. I just think it's kind of, you know, data cleansing is something that comes up time and time again with almost every customer I speak to no one has you know pristine data coming into their um, into their data lakes for one reason or another everybody's looking to do data cleansing some people are buying very expensive platforms to do it some people are um, you know doing some of it using uh, DIY uh, approach and other people are doing you know something a variety of different things in between so it's interesting to see sort of projects coming out specifically targeted at uh, data cleansing and anything that uh, anything that can help simplify this or take some of the grunt work out of it um, and relying on machine learning has is, is got to be a good thing. Yes, of course. Starcasm ding. <laughs> <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I actually found this article too and I discarded it. I didn't want to bring it up because I got a problem with it. I got a chicken and the egg problem. Because as quote from the article, the tool uses machine learning to analyze model structures, blah, 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 blah. So actually the tool that's supposed to clean your data before you use the machine learning uses machine learning, which means it needs to clean the data before you can use a tool. What? Yeah, it's somewhat <laughs> recursive. <laughs> 
um, it, you do need to you do need to obviously train it in the first place so you yeah. need to run through uh, a set of a set of training exercises to give it something to base that on but, but it's you know got, it's going to be very generic isn't it i mean finding dirty data that's really means you have to get the data into context understanding what the data is supposed to talk about to know that it's dirty data or not we're not talking about missing values here right i mean just stripping out rows that have more than half of the fields not filled in that's something in automate but really cleaning up dirty data is more than that yeah it'll be interesting to see whether uh, anyone's actually using i mean it is it was only um, it was only released sort of earlier on, a little bit yeah. earlier on this year, so it, it is very, very fresh. Yeah. Um, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see whether um, it does actually gain any traction. Yeah, I'm actually wondering that if the the Datamir tool has some uh, data cleaning stuff built in. But let's keep that for the second part of the show. <laughs> Don't jump on it, Barry. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. So, as usual, check out the show notes for the uh, for the article. I'll also put a link to the GitHub uh, page as well. Yeah, this was the link at the end of the article there that to download. I guess that's a GitHub thing. Yeah, that's a GitHub thing. Yep. Okay, back to me. Yeah, I think so. Okay, then I'm going to be very boring because actually it was pretty difficult to find articles for this show because one thing, the only thing I could find basically was the IoT devices causing the big DDoS attack on Din DNS. Everybody's talking yep. about that and nothing else. It was very annoying. So I ended up with a, uh, a suit article. It's from uh, McKinsey & Company, and it's talk, It's uh, called Straight Talk About Big Data. And it's a very long article. And the gist of the article is about uh, yeah, digital transformation. We all heard the marketed phrase, marketing phrase and how even the leaders of a company need to be thinking about it and actually doing it. Just talking about it isn't enough. And there's a quote here from the CEO of GE who said, I thought it was all about technology. I thought if you hired a couple of thousand technology people and if you upgraded our software, things like that, that was it. And I was wrong. Product managers have to be different. Salespeople have to be different. On-site support has to be different. And then it goes on about uh, how CEOs can actually tackle this big data, machine learning, new world uh, idea. But it is something that I've encountered a lot in my uh, big data life, let's say, where somebody at the top makes a decision, from now on we will work smarter, and that means it's problem solved. Or just buy the new piece of hardware, buy a new piece of software, and that will solve our problems. Or more related to what I do every day now, let's just move this thing from on-premise into the cloud, and it will now work better. And of course, it's never as simple as that. Yep. So it's a nice article, goes into a lot of detail, has some nice graphs in there too. That's good. Let's see what else I put in there. Yeah, it also talks about having, uh, I talked about this before already, about data scientists working in kind of a black box environment. That is also not a good idea. You have to really have it across the company if you really want to make differences. And he also talks about the fact that a lot of these big projects actually result in very little gain because they're very isolated before they're very uh, in a silo and it's not across the whole production system or whatever you have there that's also something i've seen uh, in practice where a lot of people are very enthusiastic about the machine learning algorithm they put in there and then they get one percent less this or one percent more that and in the end of the day it was a very narrow focus and could have been a lot better yeah yeah, makes sense. And the final reason I had to put this in the show is because it actually references Arthur C. Clarke. We all know who that is, right? We do. 
Uh, Science fiction author. Yeah. They actually quote the any sufficiently advanced technology is, is this indistinguishable from magic, so I had to put it in. No choice about it. <laughs> Fair enough. Actually, it's one of two articles. They reference a second article in there as well, which if you like this article, you should also read. And uh, it gives it a nice, it's a nice overview. It's not technical at all, but as I said, everything in technical found was about IoT devices causing the DNS crashes. So that's it for me. All right. So final article then, um, a bit of a fun one. And uh, this is... Um, Battle of the Data Science Venn Diagrams. So this is something that's been rolling around. This was last updated um, just uh, just towards the end of October, so not too long ago. And uh, I, it, I just think it's a great article because it starts off with um, the history of um, sort of these Venn diagrams. And it starts talking first about um, one that uh, a guy called Drew Conway drew back in 2010 and it's got um sort of a three three primary circles of hacking skills math and statistics knowledge and substantive expertise and the various sort of overlays that that happen within that um but it's it sort of the, the, there's a few things i really like about this article first of all you should go and look at it and um, and just check out some of the diagrams because they are quite amusing. But there's a there's, there's a piece at the top of the, the article which says, uh, data science is a rather fuzzily defined field. Some of the definitions I've heard are, and then um, applied statistics, but in San Francisco. Um, and the other one I like is the field of people who decide to print data scientists on their business cards and get a salary bump. Um, <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sad but true. Um, but then it goes through sort of a variety of different sort of data science gram, uh, data science Venn diagrams that people have popped up since then. And some of these things look like, well, um, mutated octopi, I guess. They've, they've got a variety of different windows that sort of circles that contain everything from AI, machine learning, pattern recognition, statistics, visualizations, data mining, uh, you know, all these kinds of things in between. Um, but the one that I particularly like has um, has three main bubbles, one of which is hacking skills, one of which is maths and stats knowledge, one of which is substantive expertise, and the fourth one is evil. <laughs> <laughs> and then the three subcategories within the, so the three subcategories within evil are um, outside committee member, James Bond villain, and right in the centre, the core of it, NSA. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. So it's it's quite uh, and hi to the NSA. I'm sure you're listening. Um, <laughs> so it's, hey, they gave it's, us knife. You can't be mad at those guys for all. That's, that's true. I'm not. I'm not. I'm 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 totally over it. As long as they keep giving us cool tech, exactly. I'm fine with all the spying. Um, so there's th- this one. I think is particularly great, and it also calls out things like thesis advisor that guy who stole your identity online data science grad school office mate all those kind of things so it's it's quite a uh, a nice um, light-hearted view of things but then sort of as you start to uh, it's only a two-page article it's not it's not all that long but if you go through into some of them some of these get really really complicated in fact there's one which is an overlay of <laughs> um let's see one two it's a, it's an overlay of four different ovals and they intersect in about i don't know 
20 different sectors and they've broken all that down to things like the hacker, the data nerd, um, the number cruncher, the salesperson, you know, so on and so forth. And it splits it between communication, statistics, programming and business, which actually, despite it being a little bit complicated and shaped a bit like a flower, is I think quite a good set of different spheres uh, to try and break it down with. Um, and then the final one on the second page gives you a complicated Venn diagram with, I think, seven different yep. sets, which just looks like a series of octopi mating. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I challenge anyone to find anything useful in that entire diagram, but it is very pretty. So I'll give them that. Yeah, it's pretty data art. Yeah, indeed doesn't tell you anything though but it's very pretty that's a lot of numbers so, yeah. that must be right yeah absolutely the more the more numbers the the more right it must be so yeah that's my my final article for the day then let's end this first part of the podcast and when we get back after the music we'll talk more in depth about the datamir product with eric stalbers stay tuned see you then So, today, as previously mentioned, we have our special guest, Eric Starpers from Datamere, who's going to talk to us about Datamere, how it plugs into your big data ecosystem, um, what value it delivers, and uh, how it all works. All of that in 30 minutes or less. How's that for value for money? Um, so, please, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know if I can do everything in 30 minutes. That will be... Uh... <laughs> I'm, I'm not sales. They can do that, but they forget half of it and overpromise the rest. <laughs> um, but yeah, I will try. Um, just a short introduction of, of the product and the, the background. Um, we're an Eastern German company founded by uh, Stefan Groschup, um, who in the beginning, uh, or a long time ago, uh, was helping to write the, uh, in the Nudge project. So he's he's in the industry for a long time uh, in the in the big data industry. Um, about six years ago, he founded uh, Datamir as a company and as a product. And actually, what we do is to to give uh, a face to Hadoop, so to say. We we get you get an interface to uh, to Hadoop. Um, for for all users to understand, so we, you can have uh, your your business user, your power user, put data into Hadoop through a, through a simple interface, just by click, point and click, um, getting your data in um, from yeah wherever you want, so to say, and then combine it easily, uh, do your analysis um, on it, uh, and then either export it to to a, uh, another tool or to uh, visualize it in uh, with an infographic. So that's in base, basic, basically what it is. And to to understand to um, make it more accessible for people, the the interface when you do your anal analytics and your joining of data, it's uh, it has a yeah, Excel-like interface. Um, so people understand what they're looking at um, they know how how 
how and where to click uh, to make a uh, make a formula and that sort of thing. So it's it it's lowers the boundary of getting into your data and using the data that's in in Hadoop. Um, yeah, and, and and get working with it instead of yeah looking at a uh, a um, how you say a blinking dot on on a terminal. Uh, you really see something. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's uh, in very short what we do. Um, I can do the, the sales talk about how many <laughs> connectors and how many uh, functions we have, but I think it's more also more important to know that we are very open. So if you want, we, we don't want you to be stuck with Datamir. Uh, we want you to productionalize your your data, your um, your analysis uh, and export your data to your CRM system, for example, so salespeople can uh, take action on what we found is uh, is going wrong. Or, or uh, for example, uh, you do your churn analysis on, on your data and you find out certain people are at risk for churn. So you send that list of people to your CRM system and account management can act on that proactively and, and keep them on board. Um, so... It's not stopping with okay. We have an overview and and good luck with it, but really use it in your whole operation. So, from a from an architectural perspective, how if you know if I wanted to get Datamir set up and running, and I had a, a freshly installed Hadoop cluster, and I you know, got got a few data sets on board, what would the process be of actually getting this up and running? Um, it's quite easy. Um, you need an edge node on which you mm -hmm. install Datamir and connect that to your cluster. Um, nowadays, we can do that uh, with all kinds of wizards, and it really takes just all the connection strings, and you, ca you're, you can uh, you connect to your um, Hadoop environment, and that gets you running. We, we don't take data out of Hadoop to a whole different server park where you have to uh, run it. Uh, we, we use the power of Hadoop uh, to process all the data. So... If, if you have a like a billion records and you want to go through that and combine it with another billion records, we don't take the data out and do it somewhere on a, on a little server or a big server. We do it on Hadoop. And we, okay. and we use uh, a few engines and you don't have to program anything. That, that's another big advantage for, for the average user. You don't have to choose in front uh, yeah, before you start if you want to do it with MapReduce, with Spark, or or a single node execution. We look at what do we, uh, what is the, how busy is the cluster, what is the uh, job that you want to execute, and there we choose the uh, right engine for. Uh -huh. Okay, so you can you can actually interact with a variety of different kind of engines on the back end. Whether it's you know might be some simple Hive required, or it might might require something that a bit more complex and iterative running on Spark. Yeah, we don't, we we use Hive as a source, so we don't uh, execute on there. Um, so we we have to have uh, HDFS, mm -hmm. and we we can we can use uh, Map MapReduce. Uh, Spark, single node, and in memory at this moment. But when there's a new engine coming up and it starts taking off in the in the in the real world, we can add that to our system, and you can use that as well. If you're not using Hive, uh, can you work with org files, for example? We we can use Hive as a source, okay, and as, so, a, yeah, as, yeah. An, as a as a as um, a destination, but. 
So we, we, we use the Hive Metastore to con- go to the data yeah, and, okay. and take it out. So you just do an SQL query to get the data out and then calculate, analyze, whatever. But that's, yeah. 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 SQL isn't really built to do that stuff. I, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> So yeah, and yeah, that that's in, in basic what how we do it, and um, w- yeah, we need we need Hadoop. Without Hadoop, we are uh, yeah. Well, that's valid <laughs> for everybody, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah. <laughs> so who we say is the the type of person that would use the product? Is that the infrastructure person, the BI person, the reporting person, the data scientist, uh, me? Um, it's. Uh, if you look at it, the, the the typical user would be a data scientist, data scientist uh, power user. The top data scientists that dream in R, in SaaS, or whatever, we probably won't reach because they, yeah, they're hard to change their habits. But they can use Datamir to pre-process their data and then get it in chunks into their uh, their toolings, or even just get a, a subset of data right there. Or create their models, train their models, and then export that model to to Datamir and run it on the whole data set. That that's also a possibility. But yeah, but then you're talking more of Datamir as an ETL tool, and that's not it, right? That's it's more, it's yeah. more. You, uh, but they can uh, uh, when you do the pre-processing and then create your model and train your models. You can do that on a subset of your data and then export the the, the model to uh, Datamir and run it on the whole data set, which goes much faster than doing it, for example, in SAS. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when, you, uh, when you say about subsetting, so is uh, should I see this as a kind of a more interactive tool where you build your flow, whatever you want to do, on a subset, and when you're satisfied, you run it on a full data set to see if it still matches what you're expecting and tweak it yeah. a bit, do it again? Yeah. Correct, correct. When yeah. you work, when you create your, your flow, you work on a subset of data. It's, it's, we use normally 5,000 records, which is not the first, the last, or a random set. We take a representable set of data in, okay. in your workbooks, uh, the Excel interface, and then you work with that. And yeah, when you're done or you want to see the complete result, you just press run and it will run on, on Hadoop. When you do it, uh, when you work on it with a subset of the 5,000, then it runs in memory of our uh, little edge node. Yeah, and that subset, as you say, it's not random, so you're taking account yeah. outliers, mediums, uh, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, we scan, we scan the whole data set okay. when we import it, and then we create a subset out of that. So it can take a while to get started. If I have a lot uh, of billions of rows and you have to scan everything and do some, I guess, some machine learning statistic kind of stuff to get Yes, to... it's, uh, but uh, I was at a customer or a prospect. Uh, mm-hmm. We had like 3 billion records and it took that in 20 minutes, took it out from uh, from the data source into Hadoop and creating the subset as well. So that's Datamare doing import of data into the Hadoop cluster? Yes, correct. So we can do the ingest, we can do the data preparation, data analytics, and the visualization. Okay. Um, but if it's already in Hadoop, we, of course, we just point to that and say, okay, the, the, your, your data is there, take it. Yeah, because that amount of data, just transferring it from one cluster to another cluster, already takes 20 minutes, I guess, Yeah. <laughs> without doing yeah. anything intelligent with it. Yeah, but yeah, it's, uh, it also, of course, the speed depends on, on your cluster and, and that sort of things, but... Yeah, on that moment, uh, we don't do anything extraordinary. It's all done on Hadoop. Um, and we just we just give, a, like say, a command to Yarn and they execute. 
Mm. And when you do the import and you have done, uh, uh, at that point you say you make the statistics you need to have a data, nice data set out of there. Do that persist uh, that information on the on the edge node then, or if I take that same data set again tomorrow, do I have to rescan the data set? No, the 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 it will persist on your. On, I think it will stay on the edge node. Um, but uh, it it will it the whole uh, subset or the yeah is is stay uh, is recalculated on every import job. So every time you run your import job, it will be recalculated. But if the import job doesn't change, the next it, it, it won't change for a year. The whole the subset is all the time the same. Okay, so when you say import jobs, you mean for incremental updates, for example, if I add another two hundred lines to the data, existing data set, it will change my random yeah okay. yeah. Correct, correct. So basically the data ingest person or the data wrangler at the company will also have to work with the tool, can also work with the tool. To can also this. work with the tool. Um, if, if they want to do it with another tool, no problem. We can just take the set that's in Hadoop and use that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it take, makes it also much easier for, for um, I'd say, power users. They have an Excel sheet somewhere or a CSV file, and they want to add that to uh, yeah, to to enrich the data, and they can easily do that with a uh, with a tool. Okay, how, how does it work with security? Because if you have a big data lake, you typically have a number of zones where this is raw data, nobody touches, nobody sees. This is the anonymized part. Here, people can work with. If we we can do uh, the secure impersonation, so you hit Hadoop with the right uh, security. So your full Kerberized, uh, yeah, Rangerized. Yes. Uh, yeah. Correct. And so, I mean, that's that's all. A lot of that's to do with the sort of data integration and and data preparation and a bit of the data analytics. But as as I understand it, there's there's quite a bit in Datamir to do with the sort of the visualization side of things as well. Yeah, uh, we can visualize. It's what we call the infographics, um, which is really static um, visualization. So we are at the end, uh, end of the analysis, and then we show what's what's there, what's in the end. But we can also, of course, export to uh, Tableau Server, mm-hmm. uh, or you can with Power BI or with Click, you can connect to to the Atomir and get the data out. Uh, to to the yeah the visualization tools that that are in use with the with the companies, um, but but more important I think than the visualization is the uh, productionalization so that we can export the result of an analysis to any other uh, tool uh, to your CRM system to your Marketo maybe. Uh, to to yeah to really use your data and not just look at it. So apart from it being an interactive tool to figure things out, it can also be a full automated part of a work production workflow. Yes, per- correct. So you you can even there's one company that uh, analyzes their web uh, logs and the uh, call center details to to predict uh, churn. They just look at the path to churn and. They run that every night, and in next morning in the CRM system, uh, if some customers are in, on a path to churn, they, they get a pop-up, the account managers, to call those persons. And it learns as well. If there's a new path, it will take that into consideration the next time it runs as well. And you do say path, so you're not really looking at a personal information of a person to see if he has done certain stuff, but more making a model that if person X, whoever it may be, does these 
different things in a certain time frame, then that is a type of person that might churn. Yes, correct. And that's based on, uh, okay, some somebody in in the path or past has has followed that path or uh-huh. mo- more than one uh, that and at that moment it ended in churn so now we we chuck the churn part off and if you follow the path be, uh, until the churn then you get a call then you're in, in yeah. danger uh, or a customer in danger or in jeopardy Ooh. as they say <laughs> Yeah, but this is a typical machine learning thing, right? I have yes. a lot of historical data. I make my Spark model, and now I have a model that works. And I give the model to the production to just run the whatever happens events through the model to say yes, no, this will churn or not churn. Yes. This training of the model, this uh, figuring out if the model needs to be a regression, classification, whatever, is it also something that the data mirror product does, or is it something I need to prepare separately in a Spark notebook or something? Uh, you. We have a lot of functions. Uh, you can create your own functions as well uh, to be used in Datamir. Um, so, but we are not a real machine learning tool. We are an analysis tool. Mm-hmm. So, if you have a a, um, a model, a prediction model somewhere, uh, you can create a PMML okay. uh, a file out of it. Then you can import that into uh, Datamir and run it. So, and that way, uh, like. You can use SAS R SPSS for your modeling and uh, training your models, and then use the model in Datamir. Yeah. Do you have to go through PMML or can you just call a uh, socket server somewhere to say yes, no? Um, Mostly PML. If you have R, uh, you can install R on all the, uh, the data nodes on the cluster, and then we can talk directly to R. That's at this moment towards the flavors. Directly to R, is that our server then? Our server, yes, our okay. server on, but you have to install it on the all the data nodes in the in the cluster. Oh yeah, obviously. You need to have libraries and everything there to make yes. it work uh, distributed. Yeah. Of course, that's typical for all Hadoop workloads. <laughs> I <think>. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that that's the yeah, and and we integrate very nicely with that, and it's. Um, but I, but I think it's it's very important to know it's it's that we use Hadoop in all essence and yeah. not not trying to get uh, get rid of it or whatever. Um, actually, the guys at Hortonworks and at um, Microsoft and all the other vendors are very happy with that, happy with us because it uh, it accelerates the use of hadoop because people are starting to use the data in there adding more data sources and and growing the cluster yeah i, I got to admit that uh, for me i kind of like to abuse you guys to make hadoop understandable for end users yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's very difficult sometimes to uh, to yeah to sell hadoop because it's yeah it shows you a nice uh, uh, so some nice uh, screens, but it doesn't show you the data and and what you do with the data, and we can we can make that visible. Yeah, and it's also Hadoop usually presents itself as a very opaque piece of witchcraft, which you need to be in, in, inducted into. And a tool like this, that presents it with a nice user interface, a recognizable one like Excel, gives it a little more. Oh, we can do this. This is something I know. Yeah, and also for data scientists, if if you have the models imported into a data mirror, they don't have to run it the whole time. And then when there's a, somebody coming, can you do this model? We need this. Uh, can you run it on here? They can do it themselves without knowing what exactly the model does, but they know, okay, this is the correct one. Mm-hmm. We use that one. It's a function in data mirror. 
we fill in the parameters and it runs. So the way of, uh, I don't know, securing that, where you have one model that is, I don't know, highly classified and the other one isn't, that I can say you can run that yeah. model. but not Yes, one. you can. You can. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's really thought about. How old is the product, actually? Um, the product is like six years old, but before that, um, yeah, it, it's like a typical uh company their first were a consultancy firm where they did all this uh, all the time for the company for their uh, customers and then they thought okay we should make a product out of it and one uh, in the evening of uh, they, they fired everybody the next day they hired everybody again and <laughs> datamir was was born, born. <laughs> yeah is that how it works in business i must have missed that lecture <laughs> yeah they, they just had a to cut the company uh, to create a new company and they did it like that mm. and in, in the same night I think they moved from Halle to, to San Francisco from Halle? Uh, Halle in Germany oh okay because you have a Halle in Belgium as well like they come from those yeah. surroundings I was thinking what? <laughs> I didn't know no. that no the, the, the real nice Eastern German Halle uh. <laughs> So what's what's some of the most like interesting um, use cases or some of the most interesting examples you've seen someone use Datamir to do? Um, a very nice one is with a big credit card company. Um, what they had is they when you claim, for example, your your a new Ray-Ban is stolen the day after you. Uh, um, how to say uh, you bought it with your credit card? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they want to investigate that. Um, every claim under, I think it was twenty-seven dollars. They didn't investigate because it took too much time and too. Yeah, the costs were higher than the the claim. And with the use of Datamir, they they cut it down to seven dollars, so that they save like two billion dollars. <laughs> That's that's definitely a saving worth having. Yeah, yeah. I wish we would have said, okay, we take like one percent of your savings. <laughs> Interesting licensing model there. <laughs> Completely new. <laughs> yeah. People always want to do revenue sharing deals. Or this is the funny thing: like vendors never want to do revenue sharing deals until after the fact, when it's all proven. Then they go, damn, I wish I'd taken 1% of that. And customers always want to do revenue sharing deals up front when they can't prove anything, but they never want to do them afterwards once they have (laughs) proved it and made billions of savings. (laughs) It's a weird world we live in. certainly is. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've seen a a couple of organizations using Datamir. I think the thing that strikes me is like Hadoop is, by and large, it's a platform. Right? It doesn't really expose the data particularly well. There are a few areas where data starts to surface a little bit. You know, if you're using um, HDP, then you'll see, you know, Ambari views are starting to surface the data with things like um, the file system browser view and the um, or the HDFS file browser view, the Hive view, which has some limited sort of visualization. If you're in the Spark world and you start using uh, Zeppelin, then you'll start to see some of the data surfacing a little bit. But for the most part, like, it's a platform. It doesn't really do any sort of exposure of the data that's left it's almost like it's almost always an exercise left to the 
the person consuming the platform. And Datamere seems to me to be a really nice way of actually providing that surfacing of the data to people that just want to treat the platform as just that. They don't want to necessarily – they've got people that run the platform for them. They're interested in the data, and that's for them, seems to be a great way to interact with it. Yes, you you hit the nail on the head. It's it's, it's really like that. We 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 give a face to to Hadoop to the data of Hadoop, and yeah, it's it's it, the adoption of Hadoop uh, it goes much quicker because of that because people can work with it. For for if if you just give them a uh, yeah, we they say we have Hadoop and people say okay, we do something with big data, but it's it's somewhere down in the basement. People are uh, yeah, the guys with the long hair and the ponytails are are doing something, and in two years they come out and. Yeah, we have got something, and it's not what the business wants. Yeah, and, and yeah. now they really can can do it themselves, and they cannot complain anymore. It's not what we want. You build it yourself. Yeah, I mean, what does what does a typical um, you know, if someone from our audience here is wondering what a pilot project might look like? What what would you typically suggest if someone's thinking about, you know, maybe they've already got a small Hadoop cluster, they've got a couple of data sources on there, they're not really seeing the value yet. What would you suggest, you know, a, a pilot involving Datamere might look like? Oh, it's difficult. We, we always want use cases. Like, okay, yeah. what's, what's a real problem with your, your organization? We have, we have a whole um, a website with all use cases. Where you can choose, like, what, what what do people do there? What do people do in other uh, uh, industries? But uh, yeah, churn is a, is is a big one. Uh, just if if we can get a churn down by by five percent, um, that's a big deal for most companies. Um, another use case was a nice one: uh, where to spend our uh, advertising budget. Mm-hmm. And that's that sort of thing. So, so come with a use case that that really has a, a problem. And we, we you talked about data cleansing in, uh, in in the beginning a bit. There there is a in the Netherlands. I'm, I can talk for that. Um, like uh, insurance companies, they exist of buying all other companies and then combining them um, just by the by a logo, but they don't work together. So the whole customer 360 is, is not there. Just start with that and try to, to clean your data and combine your data so you don't, then company A doesn't call uh, a person to sell a, a car uh, insurance while the, that person already has it with company B, but that's the same company. And that happens a lot. Yeah. So just get your, your customer 360, 720, whatever you want to call it. And and do it on there. I think that's that's one of the biggest use cases. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we, when we when we talk about um, pilot projects, which we have done a number of different times, so we always recommend you know start off with a, a use case that delivers enough business value to be relevant, useful yep. to the business. Um, preferably not something that's so business critical that if you don't get it done right away or if it doesn't go exactly according to plan um you know it won't bankrupt the company but something that delivers <laughs> you know some value to the business maybe isn't too critical but is important enough that you know you will actually get some some insight from from having yeah. delivered it and yeah. uh, something that you know maybe starts off with a 
relatively small number of of data sources required to implement it and and then from there you know build on that build, build on that build foundation on. yes correct and we we do lots of time pocs and we come in like 3 to 5 days to do one, two, or three use cases, depending on, on how big they are, of course. Mm-hmm. We have one use case. It's like, okay, we cannot combine two data sources because of the sheer volume. Okay, then we help in that, and, and we could combine it and get them insights in those in the combined data. That, for, for them, was a use case, a very good one, and we could do that in, like, I think we did it in a day and a half. Yeah. Just, just combining it, um, getting the data in, and... They had tried it before, and their system crashed after like five days because it, yeah, it took all the, uh, how do you say, all the, uh, all CPU oh. and all the memory. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah that, that's a use case. Yeah, I was going to say it's surprising how often that seems to happen. Like old, old school legacy systems that take, you know hours and hours or sometimes days and days to run things and then you know run it under hadoop and you know that the job runs in you know 20 minutes or whatever it might be yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all praise the power of hadoop um so <laughs> just uh, just something that um i was looking up as as we were talking was uh, i was interested in this kind of smart execution and one of the yeah. things you, you mentioned was um, that it supports map produce and internally whenever i hear the words map produce i kind of groan slightly but <laughs> i was looking i was looking at this and actually um the the kind of execution framework you support is what you call optimized map produce so it yeah. is actually using apache tez behind the scenes so yes, correct, it's correct. actually yeah, yeah. So it is actually reasonably performant in that perspective. And then obviously, as you mentioned earlier, you're also able to use Spark as well. Yeah, correct. So, I mean, it's kind of the, the smart execution itself is, I find, really interesting because if you've got – this is one area where people often struggle, which is, you know, they've got a use case they want to implement and they, they're kind of struggling with, well, which – which technology should I use to implement this? And what you're saying is implement it in Datamere as the, as the sort of the tool and we'll choose, depending on how much data you select, we'll choose actually the, the underlying execution engine yes. based on what's the best fit, just based on, is it is it just based on sheer sort of data volume or is it does it go into the complexity of the processing that you're doing behind the scenes? Um it's volume, but also what kind? How busy is the is the cluster at that moment? Yeah. So we look at a lot of things, and um, it, but m- mainly it's, it's it's volume, of course. Yeah, yeah. And when you do an analysis, you end up all yeah. You go with a lot of data, and you 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 go down, you funnel down into like a, a small set of data, and you don't want to do that in a MapReduce job. Yeah, you you want to do that in a memory or whatever, uh, but you that that's where we choose and um, to choose yeah, we choose the engine uh, and we can also like okay this part we do in in, uh, in Spark and then the end we do in, uh, in in a single node. Yeah, so it's also not the whole thing in one engine. It's it's the subsets we can take and uh, switch engines. Nice, nice. Excellent, and and I think it's very important. No, also what we mentioned earlier, we can add engines there. So if there's a new engine uh, next year and it it it's uh, it gets production ready, we can add it as well to our uh, smart execution, and you can use that. 
without changing anything in your workbooks. Ooh, any 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 roadmap information you can share on the strict NDA, of course. <laughs> uh, between you and me, no. <laughs> I won't listen then. <laughs> uh, no, I I don't have it at this moment. At this moment, um, uh, we we're really working hard on um, making our visuals interactive, and that's the next big thing that will come. Okay, interactive in an exploratory so, kind of way, or yeah. yeah, yeah. So now you ha- you need your workbooks to. You create your workbooks to to put in your visuals, and now in the in the future you can also use import jobs just to go through your data and uh, really do a drill down, drill through, and that sort of things. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you just also change the product itself from a uh, application you to install on your on your on your system to a web driven interface? You used to have a thick client, and now it's a web client, or is that no, no, ago? it's. It, as far as I know, it's always been a web client, okay. uh, but there is a local install you can use for like uh, on your own machine. Okay. You can install it locally. Um, it, it comes with a, a OneNote Hadoop uh, cluster, so to say, as long as you, as far as you can call a OneNote a cluster. <laughs> but uh, but then you can just use it on your laptop or your uh, on your local machine to. Just to is it, try it. Is that a trial kind of thing, like the sandbox? Yeah. Or, yeah, it's not meant for production yeah, yeah. use. No, no. Okay. <laughs> if you run it on your own machine in production, mm. that would be... Uh, and is it then free to download? It's free to download. Uh, you can get a two-week license uh, to try it out. And there are some limitations, of course, uh, against the whole uh, the, the, the complete product. You cannot export data, for example. It's really to get to see what can Datamere do. Well, if you send us a link of the, of the download, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I will send that. And I think we need to stop talking now, because as usual, we far over our half an hour <laughs> estimation Sorry. to try to do. Uh, any closing remarks from you people? No, for me, it's. I think uh, if you need any more information, you can always find us on the web. Uh, we'll uh, uh, I, find some. Can I just put your email address in the show notes so people can contact you if they have questions? Yeah. <laughs> Was that a sarcasm? I haven't got my machine running. <laughs> I, will, I will give you the, the email address of my sales guy. Yeah, well, if uh, people have uh, technical questions, go and send us to us, and we'll make sure we'll pass it on to somebody. And I think Eric will be nice enough to help us out. No, we can, we can, uh, you can send it to me, and I will uh, point it to the right persons. That's no problem. All right, then. Dave, take it away. All right. Well, that is about all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. And uh, thank you very much to uh, Eric for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, send us your questions, and please give us a five-star review on iTunes even though I don't like it. Um, It really does help New Year's discover the podcast, and it helps us to broaden our audience. Uh, So more people listening to The Roaring Elephant equals good. Um, If you don't think we deserve the full five stars, that's okay. But then please give us some feedback um, via the feedback form on our website or drop us an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, sarcasm for yon's machine learning (laughs) to discover and any other feedback so first of all thank you so much to eric for uh, putting up with us listening to us and contributing all sorts of fun data facts no problem thank you 
Um, my name is Dave. And my name is Sol And we look forward to speaking to you in two weeks' time. Bye.